Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Biology Bios. My name is Jim Edelman. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Memphis. And my purpose with this podcast is really twofold. First, to remind everybody that most Thursdays during the semesters at 4 p.m. in Ellington Hall, we have guest speakers giving talks about their research in all sorts of different areas of biology. So please come and check those out. The other thing is to have those people on here uh, and get to know them a little bit before they give those talks. So we'll be asking them what gets them super excited about their biology, uh, about their research, and uh, hear their advice for younger biologists, folks who are coming up in the, in the sciences right now. I will say that I stole these questions uh, shamelessly from Rhett Miller's great podcast called Wheels Off, so please check that out as well. But without further ado, let's get to our guest this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dr. Christina Kwapich, welcome to Biology Bios. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so so the first thing uh, I'd like you to do, if, if you could give just a really brief intro to uh, who you are, what your position is, where you are, uh, and then we'll get into some additional questions. Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in the biology department. I am a behavioral ecologist and an entomologist uh, studying the behavior of social insect societies. And I came to this position after getting an undergraduate degree in entomology and a PhD in evolution and ecology. Very cool. Um, so with that research focus, um, I was going to ask if you could tell us about one project that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about and why, why are you jazzed about that project? Sure. One of the things that has been occupying my mind most nights is um, sort of the behavior and ecology of these creatures that we call myrmecophiles. So myrmecophiles, um, as the name sort of implies, are ant-loving creatures. So these are associates of ants. Uh, we often call them guests of ant colonies, but they're unwelcome guests in most cases. So these are parasites um, that live inside ant nests. And I work on a few specific groups of these myrmecophile parasites, and those include um, the world's smallest cricket, as well as some beetles and spiders um, that sort of hoodwink the ants by mimicking their communication signals uh, to sort of insert themselves into the social food flow system of the nest. So the project I'm most excited about has to do with um, these little tiny crickets, they're wingless, they don't have a song, they don't even have ears like most crickets you know. Um, and they, for all intents and purposes, look like a tiny little cockroach. Uh, roach col ant colonies also have cockroaches, but that's for a different day. Pretty um, cool, and these crickets, yeah, <laughs> these crickets are interesting because they can exploit really any ant colony that you put them in. So the species I work on are host generalists which means that they can um, tickle the mouth parts of any ant species and stimulate them to regurgitate food and then steal that food. They also eat their host ants' uh, babies, the larvae and pupae, and um, sort of gain protection from the ants by living inside their subterranean nests. 
So you can actually exchange them between the colonies of any ants, and they very quickly pick up on uh, the signals of the ant colonies, both tactile and uh, chemical, or the odors of the ants. And so some of the work I'm doing now has to do with um, how living with different ants actually changes the way that those crickets look and act. So the crickets reach a different body size depending on which ant they grow up with. So if you put them with a really tiny, small ant, the cricket becomes really tiny and small. And if you put them with a really big ant, the cricket becomes quite large. Um, so we're looking at some sort of evolutionary perspectives on that, like why would that happen? Why would it be adaptive? And actually, what are the consequences of host choice? Like if you pick a tiny host, does that mean that you, because you're tiny, lay less eggs? Is there any trade-off? Um, why aren't these crickets specializing on just the very best hosts? Why do they pick so many and why are they phenotypically plastic? So that's one big thing I'm working on. We have a lot of little crickets in the lab and we're doing lots of cross fostering and um, egg harvesting. I call them my little hen houses. I have boxes with ant colonies and um, crickets and I take their eggs each day. <laughs> oh man. So how many, how many different species of ant hosts do you have in the lab then? So right now we're making working with um, four major species that have sort of uh, different traits on this axis that we're using. But I found the same cricket species with 41 different hosts. Whoa. So And you can even put them with ants that they've never met in their evolutionary history, like invasive ants from other continents. So they'll just fit right in. <laughs> that is that is so super cool. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bird guy. Uh, but oh. I like in grad school, I just I started like every time social insects and well, also like the parasites of social insects and like parasitoid wasps. I just like I love these are such cool stories. They're such neat evolutionary systems like like what you're working on. Oh, there's definitely overlaps between social insect biology and bird biology, especially with brood parasites. These in some yeah. ways are like cuckoo strategists because they do put their eggs in the egg pile, the ants. Um, and I also happen to love birds. I'm teaching ornithology, which is weird. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's really cool, oh, man. Okay. So I feel like there's a little bit, well, I'll, I'll kind of get into this later, but like that diversity, I think is something that I don't know that, that everybody like thinks about. Like you think about like the professors, like do this one thing and hyper focused on this one thing. But like the more people I talk to, the more I realize like people are interested in all sorts of stuff. Like, yeah, we focus on these these things in our lab, but like, that doesn't mean we don't like these other cool systems that are out there. It's um, true. So, okay. So getting into this cool system, I wanted to ask, was there a time that you knew you wanted to be a biologist? I mean, maybe was there a time you knew you wanted to be an entomologist or was there like, how did you, how'd you get where you are? That's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of people come come to those conclusions after taking an, a special or important class as an undergraduate. Um, for me, I grew up really, really liking animals and um, just wanted to keep as many lizards as possible and as many insects as possible in my bedroom. Nice. <laughs> and um, I read some some books that sort of refined my interest in keeping animals and kind of flipped it over to sort of a more scientific interest. And um, I read those books 
I think at the end of elementary school, beginning of middle school, and and they really set me on the path towards ant behavior. Uh, oh, the wow. books were richly illustrated with lots of photographs of fungus farming ants and army ants. And um, one of those books was called Journey to the Ants by Bert Holdabler and Ed Wilson. Uh-huh. And that one is written for the layperson. Um, and it, it, it did a really good job because I, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that the ants were talking to each other with chemicals and were herdsmen and farmers and all of these really interesting um, things that people also are. Um, but in, you could fit the whole society in the palm of your hand in some cases. So that just was so exciting to me that I could have sort of a a whole, you know, society that was accessible to me, um, even at that age, right? You don't have to go all the way to, you know, Africa to study chimpanzees. Like you have very cool insect societies in your backyard in St. Louis, Missouri, right? Yeah. So um, that got me set on it. And um, I haven't looked back since. I probably could have gone in some other directions. I do just love all sorts of animals and natural history. But um, I was one of the early early interest people. <laughs> so No, that's super cool. I And yeah, I feel like, you know, maybe if I had picked up those books at that age, I, you know, like you think about like the possibilities of like, that is so cool. And, and yeah. I can definitely see how that would be appealing at that age as well. Also, <laughs> are, so did you grow up in St. Louis? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. Um, I you know, that's where I'm from farmland. actually too. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a small funny. world. Yeah. I know so many specifically ant biologists that came out of St. Louis and we don't really? know what, what happened, like why that happened. Oh, that's but wild. It's interesting. Maybe it just generates a lot of. Uh, Do, <laughs> did we have ecology. really cool ants that I didn't know about in St. Louis? We don't. No, not <laughs> even. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't know any better, but. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to kind of switch a little bit. And I, I haven't figured out the perfect way to ans- ask this question because I it feels like it's a little bit weird, but it's something that I feel like is also kind of universal which is um, in science, uh, kind of at all stages, but certainly at the stages where we are as professors, like we're evaluated from the outside a lot. Um, But we also have like internal critics, like that voice in your head that's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't know about that idea. Or like, "Uh, no, you can't try that. You can't do that. You know, like that's, that's the naysayer. And I wondered for for our students that are coming up in in sciences, like, what do you do with that voice? How do you either, I don't know, silence it or, you know, make it turn it into your favor? Yeah. Yeah, I think in every person's career, there's maybe like a, a turning point where you've been just very passionate and driven to pursue and and get close to like the things you're interested in in any way possible, like get into a research lab, go out with a professor, get an internship, just like get a, get a taste of science in any way you can. And then when you start developing your own questions and ideas and you start trying it for the first time, you you look for a lot of external validation to say like, yeah, that is a new question or that that is a good question or mm-hmm. that's something that could get you a job, Right. Right. And um, a lot of people told me along the way that what I was doing, um, I'm an organismal biologist. I do pure natural history work. I'm not very mechanistic. And I was told repeatedly, like, you need to develop these other skill sets if you want to get a job. Like, you, there's no jobs in academia. Like, you should be um, 
broadening your horizons to try and um, target other things. And I think that's good sound advice. Um, but also the voice in my head was saying, I know what I like and I know what I think is interesting. And for me, I can't commit a day's work to something that I'm not interested in, even yeah. even if it's, you know, counting ants for an entire day. I know that the ultimate goal of that is something that I feel passionate about and invested in and interested in. And so I would say at a, a certain point, I stopped hearing those external voices as much and really started listening to to my own voice of saying like, yeah, I, I think I'm, I do know best because I've read a lot and um, I've done this and it was successful and gosh darn it, I think this is cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of persistence ends up being what allows people to, to make it in, in the academic field, right? Because people that really love what they're doing and um, can can convince other people that what they're doing is interesting and cool <laughs> are the ones with with staying power in some in some ways right if you lack that confidence um other people aren't going to be confident about what you do either so I would say just doggedly charge forward and identify what interests you uh, rather than what you think you should be doing um I don't know if that's good advice or or just crazy advice, but um, persistence is is a really big part of it. Yeah, um, I think I think that's a I think that is a good point, and I think I don't know. I there's something that resonates with me that like I I have asked like a lot of people for advice over the years. I still ask people for advice all the time. Like if you make eye contact with me in the hall, I might ask you to read my latest proposal or something. You know, like. The, the the thing though is like you kind of learn when advice doesn't feel good in your gut you know yeah. and like those those people that were telling you like oh no I, i'm sure they there's somebody was like oh no you've got to study the genes that are involved you've got to do rna seq on this or something you know mm -hmm. and you're like yeah that's not what i want to do I, I i feel like there's this skill that you build up over time of like getting the advice and then shunting it into different like compartments that's like, no, I'm not, I don't need to listen to that one. And even my advice is an example of the fact that people usually tell others to take the same path they did to get to this destination. And there are many paths to, I mean, becoming a biology professor, for instance. Um, so people will tell you what worked for them, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing that has to work. So yeah. That's, that's really great advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay. So, so this might actually have, have melded into the next question, um, which, which is thinking, um, back to, to yourself as an undergrad, but like in today's world of, of biology, of science, um, what advice would you give that person? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Applying to graduate school, if that's someone's goal, is becoming more and more competitive. You see a lot of applicants with a paper or even two papers, which I didn't have when I no, graduated yeah. as an undergraduate. I did research. I was working in labs, um, but you know, I was still learning. And I and I actually think that what I gained from trial and error, although it didn't result in a paper, was in incredibly valuable. Um, so I would recommend that students try and get involved in some kind of research and become an expert on 
some little corner of science as, as an undergraduate, however small that is. And if you're lucky enough that it results in publication, that can't hurt, right? It definitely helps. Um, yeah. But I kind of didn't get involved in my own research till much uh, later in my undergraduate career because I just didn't know that that was an option. You know, um, I didn't I didn't really understand that that was maybe something expected if you wanted to go to graduate school. I didn't really even know I wanted to go to graduate school. I just knew I wanted to work on ants. I didn't know what the career part would look like. So looking ahead a little bit um, does help. Like, do you want to go to graduate school? Like if you're a student, um, do you want to work in fish and wildlife or do you want to work at a, a Fortune 500 company? Like what what's your goal? And um, think about talking to some people that have that job and, and, and maybe um, seeing what sort of hallmarks of success they would point out for you. But in general, I would say as an undergraduate, I was, um, you know, sufficiently curious and, and interested in my topic. I kind of flaked early on in some of my general coursework. It was a big change from high school. Oh, yeah. And like still today, somehow, like, I had to submit my transcripts when I applied for this faculty job. Uh-huh. And it was so uh-huh. long ago, but I saw my organic chemistry grade. And I thought... <laughs> So maybe if I could go back in time and redo it, even now, I, I would like to take chemistry and physics again, because I think I could definitely appreciate them more now that yeah. I use chemistry and physics so much more often. But I think that's hard as an undergrad because you don't have the perspective and you don't have, you're building that scaffolding to hang knowledge on, right? And sometimes um, you're just not ready to accept that knowledge yet at the age of 19. Um, yeah. yeah, but that's okay. You know, you can still you can still get a job even if you fumble a few classes. Yeah, I think that is an important lesson on both sides, right? I mean, like, I and I think it's important just generally the idea like a growth mindset, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, so so maybe you didn't do great in organic chemistry when you were an undergrad. You clearly did really well going forward, right? You know, like that. That doesn't have to. That doesn't have to be the end all. Like it's it's about these trajectories that you that you choose and how you're doing more and you're more excited about something and you're learning more at each step. Oh, definitely. When when students apply to my lab for graduate work, I I barely even look at their grades. I mean, I I look and see if this person is um, a creative person, which you have to be if you want to be a researcher. They're highly curious if they're borderline obsessed with some kind of an organism or topic or idea um, that's keeping them up at night. Um, you know, those those are kind of the traits that make somebody want to do research and um, a good researcher. Um, being able to perform for a test in class is important. Getting that knowledge is important. But um, the other things are maybe equally or more important. <laughs> uh, putting together those disparate ideas, like that creativity yeah. of pulling stuff together. Like, I don't, I don't think I fully appreciated how important that was until graduate school. Um, I started to appreciate it a little bit doing what you were talking about. Like I was similar, like I, I got into labs uh, later in my undergrad and, but then it was like, oh, you know, this is <laughs> oh. the stuff that's unknown. Like, how do you get yeah. to that? next thing that's unknown well you have to be creative you have to like and and there's also one thing i like about ecology um and behavioral ecology i guess too is like right there's creativity in the how you do it right there's the duct tape yeah, you know like what do i have available things. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that's exactly right tinkering it's fun yeah totally. it should be fun <laughs> 
Oh, that's that's very cool. Um, well, the final thing I just wanted to say is, um, are there any uh, questions that uh, you wish I had asked you that I haven't asked you? Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Well, what what others have asked me before, like postdocs, undergrads, is you know, how many times have you had to move, or or what oh. have what have you had to do to, to get um, a faculty job? And I'll just say, you know, um, academia, if you want to go into this, is one of those things that kind of breaks your allegiance to every place you've ever lived because it's a job where um, I moved from Ohio State and Columbus, Ohio to Florida State and Tallahassee for grad work and then Arizona State for postdoc and then Lowell, Massachusetts for my first faculty job and now back to Florida for my second faculty job. And like during that time, like every time I left a place, I kind of felt like I just got comfy and I love everybody here. And, you know, it's really hard. But at the same time, now I realize I have friends in every city in the country. And part of academia is sort of traveling and being part of like a global group of academics that are interested in the same stuff you are going to conferences each year, um, talking about the things you're passionate about, catching up and, you know, reviewing each other's grants and papers. And like, you're just in constant contact with this network of people you create every time you go somewhere else. And I actually really like that. I like that. I knew I wanted to come back to my favorite field sites in Florida. So I, I worked really hard to make that circle back right. to, to Florida, but, um, you know, you don't always end up the place where you want to be right away. And that's okay because you're kind of everywhere, (laughs) you know, in academia, you're spread all across the world, um, doing field workplaces, going to conferences, having colleagues. So it's a, it's a neat thing. And it's a great opportunity actually to come and visit you guys um, next week uh, for the first time to meet new potential colleagues and collaborators and friends. Um, That's one of the perks of academia, getting to, go to other universities and um, be immersed in, in their community. So I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's super cool. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. We've, we've moved around a bunch um, over the years and it's, it's kind of the norm. There is this nice thing of like, it, it kind of makes your backyard feel bigger, right? Like mm-hmm. I can tell you the best place to get a hamburger in Ames, Iowa. You know, and like, yeah, definitely. you know, not everybody, yeah. well, not everybody's going to go to Ames, Iowa, but not everybody can tell you that, you know, you did, I, yeah. <laughs> but absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure chatting and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about those ants and crickets next week. Thank you so much. And I hope we get a chance to chat more during my visit so I can learn about your work. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest this week, Dr. Christina Kwapich. Remember, you can check out her talk next week, February 22nd, 2024, at 4 p.m. in Ellington Hall. Hope to see you there, and thanks so much for listening.